Hello and welcome to Akadi Magazine's Connecting Communities podcast. My name is Abna Sewa and you're listening to part two of our interview with Dr. Marlene Ellis, founder of BlackBreastCancer.com. This time round, she's joined with her friend, Juliet Amwa, also a breast cancer survivor. In this segment, Juliet explains how she was able to support Marlene after Marlene learnt about her breast cancer diagnosis. This episode reflects the real experiences of both women and as a result, you may hear a voice or two crack under the emotion in some places. Please stick with us as these words hopefully serve as inspiration for others dealing with the disease. P.S. The book that's mentioned at the start of the interview is called Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life by David Servan Schreiber. Thank you. So one thing that really touched me, Marlene, when you spoke before was when you said that the website Black Breast Cancer is the world's Juliet and the support that you got from her when you told her that you had breast cancer. So could you talk to us a little bit about that, both of you, please, how that was for you? You see, Juliet is very practical. She was, and on many, many levels, I needed that. And I didn't even think about reading, although I read, you know, and and so when she just handed me that, Mm. it really grabbed me before I even knew I needed to be proud as I could concentrate. And that book led me onto everything else. Then read this and then read this. It didn't occur to me before that, yeah, yeah, I should read something. Yeah. And so it was really important. You just need that when you don't know what's going on. I needed to be held going to chemo. She she takes she, she does a high power job. She's quite high level and she just just say I'll take the day off. You know. I only had one one black woman in my life. I know lots of black women. I I I you know, I was grounded in bricks and I know lots of people. But I actually didn't know anybody else that had breast cancer. So it was really important to me. And when I look back, I think, thank God I had that, you know. It it just held me all, all the way down, you know. Yeah. I was going to say that you said in our first chat about how Juliet just whipped off her bra and, and showed you basically yeah, her ex- Yeah, so I was a bit scared about the surgery. How is it going to work? I went round to her house one day, but I really wanted to see. And so I don't know. I mean, it really, when I think psychologically looking back, what was I expecting to see? But it, it somehow it helped me to think, oh, it's no big deal. It, it, you know yeah look she's still standing she's you know she's still there and she's very blase about it you know she can look at and show see this is so it's a way of sort of making you feel like this is a big deal but it doesn't have to be a big deal you know she's that type of person so Juliet talk us through your experience of whipping out your boob to, to Marlene so firstly I yeah. guess so someone did that for me when I first had, had breast cancer but it was a white woman yeah but I also think I mean I don't whip out my breast for everybody when I was first told I think you go into this space of what is my body going to look like and 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 of course you worry about dying and and all those sorts of things but you also go into well how's this going to look 
And and I think that, I mean, interesting when we had the conference and someone asked about how did you feel then about your body and, and being sexual and those things afterwards. And I think I've always been somebody who's been quite matter of fact about my body. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was more just about going, well, actually, this can happen, that it's not the end of the world, you know, and they can still look okay. You can still look feminine like a woman and feel like a woman, even when you've had breast surgery. Because I think you conjure up all these ideas about what this is going to look like once you've had the surgery. I always find it interesting when I tell people I've got breast cancer because I always look at my breasts. And I don't know what they expect to see. It's yeah. almost like they expect one to be up by my ear or something. But it's like people automatically look at your breasts. Yeah. And I think there is something about that that's really important for, I think, for all women to know that actually you can you can still look very feminine but the other thing I was always really conscious of is when I had breast cancer all the literature I read and all the pictures I saw were of white women Mm. so for me there was something about what do we look like when we've had breast cancer you know and 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 that whole thing about seeing yourself in it so I think there is just something for me that's really powerful about what am I going to look like as a black woman when I've had breast surgery? Whatever, whether that's a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, what's that going to look like? And I found it reassuring. So I kind of thought, well, I'm sure Marlene will too. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. And I did. I, I did. I, I don't, it did really reassure me. I don't know. It's very more like, okay, yeah. I can do this, you know. Yeah. So, Julia, are you able to talk about your experience when did you find out how did you find out so it was one Saturday it was in the very end of June 2011 I found a lump in my breast and immediately phoned a girlfriend to say look I found and everyone my husband my you know everyone was like no no I'm sure it'd be nothing and I kind of but I never didn't believe it was and and I think I am quite instinctive about my body and I know my body quite well and it just didn't feel right so I went to the doctor's first thing Monday morning and literally within two weeks was in major surgery. So I went to the doctors. They said, look, this is this is kind of, you know, this is need to get to hospital, need to get a biopsy. And I think what was really interesting for me was when I had the biopsy and the mammogram, the doctor, I would always be so grateful to her because I had another wait of five days to confirm. And I said to her, look, please, I just need to know. I can't wait any longer. Do you think this breast cancer? And she said, yes. And so I knew at that point that this was definitely breast cancer. But then five days later, saw the doctor um, who confirmed and basically said, look, you know, we could try and shrink it with chemo first, but I don't think we should. He said, I think you need a mastectomy. Um, at that point, my dear husband says, take both her breasts. I don't care as long as she lives and I'm going, stop giving away my breasts. I don't want them to go. So and he's got a very wicked sense. Not, I mean, he didn't say it in a funny way. He was just like, yeah. I don't want to go anywhere. So just do what you need to. Yeah. So those were the options, but he highly recommended a mastectomy. And then they talked a lot about do I have a reconstruction at the same time? And I refused an implant. That's not my style at all. And I said, if you can't do it, that's fine. But I would not have a breast. I'm not going to have an implant. So then I saw plastic surgeons and other surgeons about whether they could do it or not, whether I had enough fat on my stomach to to kind of relocate. And again, my husband offered a nipple. (laughs) Don't worry, take my nipple. She can have one of mine. And I'm going to have one of your nipples. But then I literally had... 
I think it was literally two weeks from the time I found the lump to literally going down to surgery. And that was really big in that my daughter was 16, my son was 10. And I can remember now saying goodbye to them, just thinking, am I going to survive this? Because it was a 10 hour op. It was a really big operation because when they reconstruct from your stomach, I mean, I've got a scar, but like literally I only have a gap about that big around the back of my back that the, the cut is all the way around your middle. So they literally take a whole lump of, of skin and they take out your breast and they lay that underneath your skin. So it's like they, it's a huge cut. And in some ways I was quite lucky because that healed quite well. My breast didn't, but my stomach did. So afterwards you do feel like you've been run over by a bus. It was really traumatic. Mm-hmm. And I have to say a lot of it I was knocked out for. I mean, I I can remember coming round after the surgery and all I can remember is someone talking to my husband on the phone and I just get saying, please just tell him I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Because I woke up and I looked down and all I could see was massive bruising because they literally don't put any covers on you. They just put like an air Mm -hmm. thing. And I looked down and it's like I couldn't recognise my body because it was just alien to me because it was just all completely bruised and then tubes and and that was really quite freaky. And then when my husband and kids did come and see me, their faces kind of said it all really of just how traumatised they felt by it. So I had seven days in hospital. But then my breast didn't heal very well. So I had another five operations to try and heal my breast. And I had to have a skin graft from my leg. So, yeah, so that was quite hard going. And then I I recovered fairly well, but it was a big old op. And, you know, my stomach, it healed, but it's really hard suddenly being so out of action because you obviously have cut through your muscles and it's a big op. And then I had chemotherapy for six months. It got extended because at the end, my cell counts were very low. So that was really hard going. And what um, does that mean? Your cell counts were very low. So you have your, your chemotherapy and mine was a three week cycle. And as you're coming up to your next cycle, they want to check that your blood levels have increased again so that you're fit enough for your next round. Hmm. And at the end, mine was supposed to finish just before the Christmas. They had to extend it because my blood levels dropped quite a lot. And so that was quite hard because I kept kind of Christmas was my kind of I'll be done by then. Hmm. Um, and I lost all my hair and I was I had long dreadlocks. Well, I cut them off. I have to yeah. say. My husband shaved my head before surgery because I was like, I can't bear them dropping out. Chemo was tough, but but again, I met some great people during chemo. I kind of, there's a lot of people who go at the same time as you. So you'd kind of make these connections with people. And there was one when her mum used to flirt with my husband at the time. <laughs> and it was hilarious. And my husband, bless him, came to all of them. And he hates needles. So he would spend every chemo session kind of holding, holding my hand and looking the other way. Because it was quite heavy going. Yeah. And it does make you feel quite flawed. I think I probably found the chemo, because it went on so long, harder than the surgery, because it just felt relentless. And I just felt so sick. And interestingly, they gave me anti-sickness medication, but I, through all my pregnancies, I had this really bad condition where you just vomit through every pregnancy, every day. And the minute I told them that, they said to me, you will be very sick through chemo then. I don't know why, but there was some connection. So they gave me loads of anti-sickness drugs and they sometimes worked, but sometimes didn't. And then I had radiotherapy. And I think that went off about four months. And then I was on tamoxifen for five years, which again was a journey in itself. I think 
I think what I've always found interesting about it is I think when you've been through that much treatment, radiotherapy and tamoxifen initially feels like a breeze. It's just that I'll take anything because as long as I haven't got to have the chemotherapy again or go through surgery and it stops that. Mm. But I do think probably after about three years of tamoxifen, I found it really hard going and it made me feel really down. Um, And then they offered me another drug when that finished called latrozole and I was on it for six months and then I just said I can't take this it just makes me feel so down and they said look it only changes your outcomes by a couple of percent so it's really up to you and I said no I'm not taking it then so I stopped taking it um and you've been fine ever since haven't you yes I mean I did have I say that but I did have about four or five womb cancer scares where I had massive bleeding and they I had another I had about each time I had to go in for a biopsy because tamoxifen one of the side effects is wound cancer so every time I bled a lot they would then take me in to do a biopsy because the fear that I then had wound cancer yeah. um, I didn't but it was every time it was a real kind of like oh my god and it really impacted the kids particularly because every time it happened they'd be really panicked but, but no I've had nothing and Marlene, I know you talked last time about your experience. Could you tell us how you got through such a challenging period in your life? Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to just acknowledge something about the differences of breast cancer because uh, I didn't have all these difficulties. I had a different type of breast cancer to Julia. So she underwent a, a much more deeper, demanding treatment uh, for her breast cancer than mine. And it's really useful for your listeners to, to know that the range of difference because mine was like a small 2.5 centimeter tumor on the left side of my breast. So because it was on the left side of my left breast, it was the surgery was easy, you know, from, from their point of view and, um, and not, not complicated in the same way that Juliet had to. Endure mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I was diagnosed with an estrogen-related breast cancer and that I had stage two. They said if I didn't take a treatment that I would have six to 18 months to live, that it would grow and, you know, and, um, and maybe that was true, maybe it wasn't. I was in a very um, unstable position in, in my life. I was living in temporary accommodation and my work, I was a university lecturer, but it wasn't a permanent contract. And in fact, I was out of contract. I, I, it was May time. So they were selecting staff for the September. I knew that I was going to be selected, but I suddenly didn't know whether I was well enough, which meant I would be out of a job and I wasn't sure about my home service. So I was really scared. I actually first made a decision that I would not take the treatment. And what I should do is plan my exit strategy. I became more fearful of dying with dignity than the treatment because I, I'm somebody who grew up in, in foster care. And I, I wasn't sure that um, people like me were allowed to recover in these circumstances. So it became really hard for me to really have a positive sense of that so I thought this is it my time is up I've run out of luck as it were so I delayed treatment for the first month and was planning my strategy and and then I told a friend of mine a white friend Moira that um I'm not taking the treatment because I I don't think I'll have a job there's no way I'll be able to survive it 
And she said, you know, you're not thinking right. You know, you haven't got this right. And so she said, tell someone else. And then I told someone else. And then I realized that I wasn't thinking right. And they said, I should trust the man I was living with, his home. He said, you should, you should trust him. You at least tell him and give him a choice. Because I was worried I wouldn't be able to pay him. So how could I just ask him to stay? That wasn't part of the deal. But um, I eventually told him a month later. And I was about to say, you know, I'm not sure about whether I, I'll be able to pay. You know, and he just dismissed it. And he said, you know, just get well. Like, are you crazy? And I was so lucky, you know. And that gave me the confidence to then tell my boss. I told her that she needs to find another teacher for September, that I couldn't. University, you've got to be there. You can't just not show up and just, you know, be sick. So I said she needs to find someone else because I don't know what state it's going to be for me. And she just refused. She just wow. refused. Victoria, Dr. Armstrong. She just says, no. <laughs> you know, it's, they, that team carried me. You yeah. know, there are lots of times I just, they carried me. And even now, you know, I just think. I'm, I'm so oh, sorry. I'm... No, it's fine. It's fine. I, I want to share because I want to give people hope. I promised the ancestors that I would pay back. And when I was writing this website, it wasn't hard work. It was it was a sense of duty. I was driven. I was proud that I was honoring the, 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 the promise I'd entered into with my ancestors. It was a real thing. Yeah. It was, you know, I I, I had a lot to be thankful for. Mm-hmm. I learned in my diagnosis that. I was really loved yeah. and really supported. And so this is honestly just a payback in the most simplest of terms. And it feels like a real privilege. You know, you've just touched on something else, this idea of black strong woman and keeping everything together and taking that step to, to share with people who your relationships on a different level. If you're at work, you're just, work colleagues and then having to share such a personal part of yourself that's really hard to do yeah and I I, I want to share this because I, I think of I worry about women that have been raised like me that mm-hmm. that don't have parents as such that 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 grew up in care that feel alone that feel I'm talking to you Mm. That's what I'm sharing mm. because I, I don't want anybody to feel that they should be alone, yeah. you know, because I really was taken care of. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Well, the website is the world's Juliet in many ways. <laughs> yeah, that's really nice. Okay. Yeah. And Marlene, I know you talked last time about this challenge of chemicals versus herbal remedies. And I know that there was a point where you stopped taking your medication. Yeah, I'm really glad you raised this. Many black women stop taking the hormonal treatment before the five years because of the things Juliet said, you know, it's an awful experience. You think it's going to be a breeze. And then when you're on it, you get all these side effects from taking these tablets. Tamoxifen is the most well-known, so for estrogen breast cancer, that 
the medical profession has known for 40 odd years. So it's a very reliable, safe tablet. But the impact on you is awful. Mm-hmm. So many black women stop taking it before five years. And I know three women in my own circle who, that had that breast cancer return mm-hmm. that, from people that didn't continue to take it. So I would just say, I, I was one of those that stopped taking it. I hated them. I hated them. I changed them. I hated them. I, I just became irresponsible in the way I was taking it, sort of pretending that I was taking it occasionally. And then I got a scare. Mm. And I, it's only yeah. because I genuinely thought it, it had returned that I grew up and thought, i got to take this seriously. So I take it seriously now. And um, I'm prescribed to take it for eight years. The other thing to add to that, though, that I think is also, so I think two things. I think, firstly, there is something about how we manage those symptoms of taking tamoxifen. So I think there's something about that that's also really key for listeners. I mean, at times I so wanted to come off it, but I think for me, I couldn't bring myself to come off it because I felt like I couldn't do it to my partner and kids. I just felt like I can't put them through this again. But I also think what I often did was things I knew when I was exercising more or doing things where I was more proactive, actually the side effects felt better. Now, whether that's medically proven or not, I don't know. But I did feel like actually I could manage them better because often there were there were side effects of feeling really depressed, quite low, which is not my history at all. So I think I think there are ways of doing that. But the other thing I do think as well that I think as black women. So I remember when I was first diagnosed and my son was at primary school and he shared this with lots of people, but there was one woman who told me about her friend who had died of breast cancer because she refused chemo because she didn't want to lose her hair. And so I think there's all sorts of dynamics that happen for us as black women around losing our hair, around treatment, around how we're seen as women and what identifies us as women that becomes really challenging. And so I do think that there are lots of points, I think, that one, we're not seen in, in this process. We're not seen as, 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 as visibly in this process. I also think that those needs around how we identify ourselves are really strong. And that is about how society sees us. And our hair and our breasts are a big part of that. Yeah. And so people often don't want to go through that process. Um, and certainly also when I had breast cancer, you know, I was offered wigs and I didn't ever want to wear one because it was not my style. But one day I thought, OK, let me go and try this out. All they offered me was straight wigs. Mm. I actually put one on and sent a picture to my daughter and we couldn't stop laughing because it was so not me. But, yeah. but I think there's all sorts of things that I think are barriers to why we aren't seen in this. So it makes us think, well, it's not for us. And then we take bigger risks. No, that's a really good point. Especially, you know, something as simple, we think, or as obvious as, I don't want to lose my hair, but you also don't want to lose your life. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but you would have thought so many years later there would be Afro wigs available. There are. There are movements you can see. And I hope that's something that Black Breast Cancer can represent in the future. Women's creating their own organisations, their own companies to make sure that these things do exist, whether it's makeup, hair, you know. And But on that question of the alternative, the herbal, the health, Abner, there are so many layers to this. But 
the real thing is that most of us are suspicious of Western medicine. So why would we rush to say, yes, give me chemotherapy? I mean, that is a horror for white women, but I think it's worse with all the history, it becomes a worry. And so some of us take this, okay, the therapeutic route and say, I'm just going to heal myself, I'll live a healthy life and so on. I think the thing is, it's this healthy life is about not just what the diet that you just then say, okay, I'll go on a better diet. I'll be careful. I won't take sugar. I'll, I'll be careful to cut out meat or whatever. The mindset has to be absolutely adjusted at the same time mm -hmm. to have that therapeutic process work. You cannot just decide, okay, I've, I've got my diagnosis. I'll change my mindset and go. I don't want to say everybody should go and take chemotherapy, but I don't think we're at the stage where we know enough to say, I'll turn my back on that formal medication and trust in therapeutic. Now, I, I do know some people that have done that and they're living today and they're fine. But as a general thing, I think we're at a crossroads with this, where we should look at the combination of both. If you've been diagnosed and your tumour has grown in your body, you're in a state of an emergency and it might not be smart just to say, I'll take the herbal route. It, but long term, if there's anything to learn from us, it is about how do we change things for the future? Mm. And, and yeah. if we're not doing that, then there's no need for us to talk, really. So we do need to checkmate lifestyle changes. There's overwhelming evidence, for example, that certain types of processed meat has a relationship to the growth of cancer. There's certain things, I'm not saying everything is absolute and we're, and we're clear about everything. So we do have to start taking these things on board. But if we don't have the mindset right, if we accept disease is trauma related, then we've still got quite a lot to do as well as just saying, shall we do chemo or shall we do a, a complementary medicine instead? I think yeah. at the moment we're looking at both of them. And it's actually good to talk about that because in the first discussion that we had, you mentioned about a Nigerian oncologist called Dr. Olapade. And also, yeah. I believe that there's a Ghanaian oncologist called Dr. Verna Vanderpoy as well. So it looks like we are taking a lot more agency and we are doing work, can't we, to find out how we can improve our outcomes? Yeah, I mean, honestly, those women are amazing. Dr. Olapade. I would say she's probably the leading female oncologist of the world. And I'm not just talking about the black world. There's a website called thewisdomstudy.org. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, only women that live in America can apply for this, but they're creating this study of, I think they want 100,000 people in this study. And she's been very much focused on black women. And her work is all about earlier prevention. Mm. Uh, so Dr. Mm. Alapadi has done a lot of work into looking at the genetic side of breast cancer. And her view is that we should all sequence our genome pattern. If we were to do that, it's a more accurate way of identifying the likelihood of disease. And although this is the wisdomstudy.org is really for women and breast cancer, they're not including men, but they want men to encourage the women to apply. And it's inclusive, black and white women. 
But she said the results of that will also help men and prostate cancer as well because mm. they're learning more and more about genetic side. So Dr. Olopadi's work is about moving away from mammograms and eventually all our genome sequences identified because that will be the most accurate way that you can identify disease. As a matter of fact, Juliet and I, we were just talking that perhaps what we ought to be planning for 2023 is an international black breast cancer conference. Mm. So bring Dr. Alopadi to the UK so that you can really hear the advancement and, and meet some of these brilliant oncologists from across the world. I've just recently had a chat with somebody from Ethiopia. There's some great work that black women are doing about this, but we need to bring them together so that we can all really educate ourselves on it. And that's what your website does, doesn't it? It brings a lot of information together for people to use and and have their own Juliet, basically. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say thank you. I've seen you've got the book now, so I can say it's called Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life by David Servan Schreiber. Yeah. 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 And I think what's what's really good about that book, although clearly it's it's a white American man, Mm. is I think there are lots of things that talk about the impact and and stress and and other kind of practical things. But I think that because a black community, if we take it from the point of view from trauma, it kind of absolutely makes sense. So he does talk about plastics and microwaves and from where we eat from. I mean, I think food is a big thing. There's also that that I think would be really kind of interesting to look at. But I think there is something for me that's really powerful about the trauma that, that we experience as a black community, which I know is impactful. And we, we have to kind of look at that and how that plays out in our bodies. And Marlene, you mentioned that as well, you know, this idea of is it internal or is it external? So you talked about the work that Dr. Olopade is doing, but also the internal impact on our bodies from being black. Juliet and I, we're not medical experts and we're not trying to be. We're not just black women who had breast cancer. We have always been professionally working in community. So we have a real interest in that social welfare of our communities. So it's like trying to combine that. So when Dr. Olopadi is looking at all these genetic differences, this is way above my head. But what I'm interested in is why is something mutating inside of us? Mm. What is the root of that? And I'm currently writing a program and looking very much at epigenetics. Epigenetics seems to be the relationship between your environment and the stress of your environment and the impact it can have on your DNA. And it doesn't directly change your DNA, but it seems to be able to suppress something in your DNA expression. And it does seem to be deeply trauma-related. And in the Dutch famine towards the end of the Second World War, the Dutch government kept really strict records. So they were able to see patterns of women that were pregnant when they underwent the famine at the very beginning of the famine and women that were pregnant or gave birth in the third trimester when the famine had ended. And they've been able to see clear patterns of the impact size of babies that remain permanently small because of the impacts of the famine during pregnancy. So there's quite a lot of acceptance that disease is related to 
our development as a fetus. It's very much seems to be consistently trauma related that it's argued that some of it's hereditary and we've all heard of black families that say my sister my mother my grandmother they all died of breast cancer so you know the BRCA genes become really associated to that I think the other thing that as a and I and I think this is a historical issue too is is how because of our other struggles often these things are kept secret and how you know, the experiences of us as, a, as black people um, historically. When I talked about it, how many other black women who knew or had had breast cancer that had never said? And I think our parents' generation would never have said. It's, it's that whole culture of, I mean, I, I was brought up in this country, but I was born in Ghana. And I know, particularly in my Ghanaian family, there is a real thing about you don't talk about these things. Now, I think that is also really damaging because it's, it's the whole secret as if you've done something wrong. When I was quite vocal about it, it was quite challenging because it was kind of like, well, you can't talk about That's not something you talk about. And so I think there is also those cultural norms and beliefs that are I think historical but also they are seen as in the context of the racism and we've got to be strong and we can't be shown to be suffering or weak or you know and and I think they create another layer of of that experience that I think makes us so much more vulnerable to this to these types of diseases because we've got all of that that we're struggling with and there's one pattern that seems to be following us as women of African heritage anywhere in the world is that whether we're in the indigenous continent or in uh, America or the UK or Europe, we've got very low incidence of breast cancer. So the amount of times breast cancer happens in, in amongst us as women of African heritage is much less. I won't say half, but it's much less than for white women in America, in, in, in developed, sophisticated uh, environments. But the but in comparison, the mortality rate almost doubles. Mm. And I, I, I think, personally, I, I think that is a reflection of trauma and stress and more than anything else. And, and, the, and trauma and stress is largely re- related, I think, to poverty and struggle. And and I think as black women, so I think if you look at, I think any other health conditions where we are absolutely overrepresented, there was a whole issue around. So if I was a single parent and I had had breast cancer, I don't know quite how I would have accessed treatment in the same way. You know, if I was, um, you know, in a very different situation, actually, I might not have survived because I might have said, actually, I can't keep going with this chemo because I've got to sort my children out. I've got to get yeah. back to work. Yeah. I was in a job, luckily, where I could take a year and a half off. But I had six months unpaid and actually we could do that. But if I couldn't afford that, I might have said, no, I've got to stop my treatment. I've got to feed my children. Yeah. So I think there's also those factors that often I don't think mm. are considered. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that absolutely impacts the mortality rate, because if I've got a choice to have chemo or to feed my children, I I want to feed my children right now. You know, that that's the bottom line. So I think there are all those factors that I think we have to we have to think about. We have to consider. And if we think about what women in the West, black women in the West experience, how must it be if you're not in the West? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There is a pattern of countries in Africa where it's privatised. You see less women 
getting help. Mm. You know, where the cost is high, it's Juliet's point. If you've got to choose, mm. then you might choose to spend money on feeding your children instead of on yourself to go and get a breast screening. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think you're both fantastic advocates and testimonies to life after breast cancer. So I just want to thank you for giving us some of your time and for showing us that we can beat this. So I'd encourage everyone to go and look at the website. And the website's really easy for people to memorise, isn't it? Blackbreastcancer.com Thank you for listening to this episode. To listen to more content like this, visit our monthly Academy Magazine Connecting Communities podcast on Apple, Spotify, Buzzsprout, or wherever you listen to your audio. Follow our news on academymagazine.com and academymagazine.co.uk and access exclusive early release content and discounts at ko-fi.com forward slash academymagazine. The music in this episode is called Life No Day Easy by Chechaku and the Super Pong Stars and is a special remix exclusively for Akadi magazine. Superapong Stars is a high-octane patchwork of Ghana's indigenous genres, including palm wine music, high life, Afrobeat and Afro-funk. You can find out more about the band on their Instagram, Superapong Stars. Thank you.